Support for life's learning curve comes from Six Toad Cinema. Currently, video is more prevalent everywhere than any other time. If you're considering video advertising, education-based learning video, corporate work, or anything in between, find Six Toad Cinema at sixtoadcinema.vistaprintdigital.com. Making film, making change. Six Toad Cinema. Writing stories as a child. Either you loved that or you hated that at school. What I did on my summer vacation. Really? One word. It's great. End composition. And at Thanksgiving, what are we thankful for? Well, mom, dad, clothes, grandparents, food, our house. My go-kart. That's a little selfish, don't you think? There are a lot of children in a lot of places that don't have go-karts. Okay, so away from school, I used to write stories as a child and cartoon on the pages. My parents were very supportive of this, and I appreciated that. No one really knew about my stories except for my family. These were somewhat exaggerated nonfiction stories about my family, such as my parents filling the car with cigarette smoke so badly that a fire truck began to follow us. True. Another time I wrote about my sister's high school parties, one in particular where all her friends came. It seemed like the entire school was there and they all loved her. Her friends sang and they danced and they even included my parents, which is something my friends never quite mastered later. My dad getting a speeding ticket once in Mississippi on vacation and my mother read him the riot act right in front of that policeman until the policeman finally tore it up feeling badly for my father knowing what he was going through. Jump ahead. Writing in high school composition class, year three. Final project? I chose a composition about my track team, my observations, my experiences. Mr. Martin, our composition teacher, you always remember the names of your favorite teachers. Mr. Martin read my composition to all of his classes except to mine. Other friends and people I didn't even know stopped me in the hallway and they were telling me things like, uh, that was hilarious, or did Tom Queenson really get pulled around the gym by his jock for mouthing off to coach? <laughs> he did. Other kids were mad at me, like Tom Queenson, but it was okay because this was the first unsolicited non-parental attention I had gotten for writing. This would be the genesis and the budding foundation of my writing. On this podcast, we're going to talk with another man who saw his life's foundation build and develop in writing, mostly after the age of 50. We'll speak with author Clay Greger, whom I envy. Why? Well, let's find out. This is Life's Learning Curve, and I'm Paul Hart. Stand by. In this program, we dive into four segments. On the top, triggering device. Here our author, Clay, shares just how he gets there when he writes, and he also gives credit to inspirational environments. Second, pointed writing. 
Our author validates to us why his stories sometimes have tremendous gaps and defines the four types of people in their personal war that they have with themselves. Part three, Clay welcomes mentors, like-minded people, and the Tangeray Martini on the Rocks with a twist. Part four, Clay tells us why he believes his first book keeps selling and selling in a segment we call It's Got Legs. We're headed to Key West, Florida, to visit with nonfiction author Clay Greger in an interview we did several years back. He grew up in Shimokin, Pennsylvania, and was swinging a banjo by the age of 13 in the mines. By the way, you get points if you know what a banjo is in coal country. After two tours of duty in Vietnam and a full career in the U.S. Army, Clay stepped away from the service and he, his wife, and his children escaped the chaos of Pennsylvania for a more tropical climate in Key West. Now, all through his life, Clay had the urge to write, but it wasn't until he and his family moved to the Florida Keys he began to commit words to the word processor. Clay, when was it when you really began to write? That's really a hard question. And I'm asked it all the time. I really am, and that surprises me. The curiosity. When did I actually start writing? And I had to go back through and remember. The first story I wrote was in sixth grade. I'll never forget it, and it was awesome. We were given a week project to write a one-page, 200-word story about anything. It was an English lit or English grammar structuring uh, assignment. And I didn't write anything up until the night before. And I knew the deadline was there because she had said, okay, tomorrow morning when you bring your writings in, we're going to have you read in front of the class. And I wrote a story and I titled it The Hostile Insect. And it was great. It was about these black ants that had surrounded a farmer and driven him into a pond. And in the middle of the pond was a little island. And they kept him there and wouldn't let him off. And it was based on a true experience, though, where I worked on a farm as in the summertime. And we had burnt out anthills because the horses and people you know, would step into them. And I always wondered about how mad they were because we were burning them out. But after the thing was, when I read it to the class, they all laughed all the way through it. And, and the teacher said to me, "This, where'd you get this from? It was sixth grade. And uh, I told her what it was from, and she said it was very unusual. And that I, I should look into writing or something along those lines. I wasn't interested in writing, but what I did like at the time was the uh, that five minutes of fame, stand in front of the class. I was an invisible student prior to that, and uh, they really got a kick out of it. And what came next? I didn't write another story until 1969 when I got back from Vietnam. And I wanted to write a story about an experience I had gone through, and the title was Cans of Courage. And it was a true story about I got myself into a situation because we had been drinking beer and then volunteered to go and do something that we had no reason to do 
but we were asked to do it. And I thought it would make a great story. I even enrolled in the American Writers Association at the time, which was a VA benefit. Uh, they, were, they would pay for the, the lessons. So I started to write the book. I really did. American Writers Course. And uh, I came back out in order to go back to Vietnam again. So that stopped. And uh, I never did finish the story or the book or the lessons. <laughs> but I did have to pay the classes off <laughs> because I stopped sending my work in, even though I was in Vietnam. I'll never forget that. I had to pay it off. So many people are challenged when they try to begin writing something. They start with a word or an idea and then stop. What do you do to get yourself into what you're writing? I use something as a triggering device. I think I write in what is called the vernacular. I write like I speak. But at the same time, although it seems that way, I really am doing nothing more than writing down a vision that I see. And that's exactly the way I write. When I see two people across the street or that car backing in, and I can make a story out of that. And what happens is with my mind, I just start seeing the whole story from beginning to end. The truck backed in, it bumped into a lady, a drunk came out, spilled his beer on her leg. You know, I mean, I, I will write as though it's actually happening in front of me. And that's the way I write. So it's like an old friend told me who was a screenwriter that, you know, pick a subject and let it take you to where it's going to take you. The subject that you picked at the beginning may be the end line and the whole story is about something else. For example, uh, it felt like the sting of a scorpion. Uh, I use that phrase because one morning at uh, the house I got up and I was walking out to turn my computer on and, and got stung by a scorpion immediately. And uh, I mean, I knew what it was. And, but the phrase, if anybody ever been stung by a scorpion or a wasp, it's about the same. It, it, it's so immediate and you recognize what it was so I was going to write a story about, you know, it felt like the sting of a scorpion. But the story was altogether distant, different, but it ended up using that as a, a description of what happened to me. So, yeah, it, it all depends. It's just like having a dream, you know, uh, people dream and they would, they would like to remember it. And they, as hard as they try, they'll remember the first scene or two, but then it... it ebbs away, where with me, I cre create the scene, the next scene, the next scene, and it never goes away because I keep on creating it. That's why some of my stories, I can stop it and have a complete story in a page, or it can go 12 pages. Depends if I'm interrupted or I just lose interest in it, then I'll cut it off short. Besides having the passion for writing and growing that foundation, how did you go from writing to professional writing? I've had some good mentors. Randy White, always being my, I call him my extreme mentor. And uh, he always told me that you write when you don't feel like it and don't read what you write. Just write. And he also taught me the discipline of writing, which was to write 800 words a day, 
even if they're only X's and O's. That creates a discipline. Along the line of conversations, though, with Randy, and this is really true, and I, I think that you probably know this, he told me that writers, if they are writers, once they start, will never be able to stop. But there are good writers who will write a book or two, and then they stop. They're, they're not writers. I think it's maybe like these runners every day that I see coming into town. I see these guys and women running every day for years. They're right on time, you know. And writing to me is like that. Once I started to write, and once I believed that I could write, then I didn't want to stop. And I write every day. And I write a thousand words or two thousand words, and it doesn't matter whether I'm going to use it or not. I just write. I will. Everything I look at anymore has a storyline to it. Uh, it, it. The parking lot, Tom. I wrote a story about him the other day. A special Sunday morning I just wrote recently because uh, I had the thought coming into the store how I love Sundays, no matter where at, you know. And I write about them, and I write about them because it's easy to do. And I don't have to sit here and, what am I going to write about? What am I going to write about? And uh, even years ago, I remember when I first started this, I, I wrote a poem called The Wall. And it was the fact that I was sitting at the computer, didn't have anything to write about, and I was staring at my wall. So I wrote a story about the wall I was staring at, how it was crumbling, the paint was peeling, and how it was going to go on forever, and I was cracking and I was peeling and we're both eroding at the same time but it, it's nothing more than a matter of of working at it uh, I think maybe it's like I was talking to you about acting you know how many takes do you do well most of the movies have are cut you know in the, in the cutting room but they have to keep doing that to get it right and I want to maintain the same kind of a flow I want to get better at what I'm doing and I can't do this by saying, okay, today I'm going to write the best chapter of my life. All I have to know is that I cannot wait to come in here and start writing. I was writing a screenplay once I called Let Me Be, and it was winter, and I was feeling the seasonal effectiveness disorder of it all, and I wanted the film to feel the burden of winter. It was all encapsulated by the foul, bone-chilling weather, and I wanted to relate that to events in a person's life. So I tried working with music to fit that mood of what I was writing. Well, for that film, it worked, but it's frustrating because it works at times and at other times, no, nothing. So, Clay, do you have inspirational places that you like to write? You know, artists always like to have attics with great light, and that's the only place they can paint, you know, a lot of them. Writers have to have a, a, be in an atmosphere that, that creates and releases their talent in there. And believe me, it is talent. It's not a learned skill. You cannot pick up a book how to do creative writing. And I don't, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it would do me no good to go to any class on creative writing. It was a dark, chilly, windy, rainy, gruesome, terrible day. I mean, what does that tell me? So if you have a passion for doing something, and you 
cannot wait to get back to do it. You're an artist, in my opinion. Whether you're restoring or rebuilding old cars or writing and performing music or getting that jump shot just the way that you want, flipping real estate, creating a perfect garden, you're an artist at what you do. You do it in your own unique way. To find these people, and they're everywhere, they're out there, you can ask them about their passion. If it's their garden, you'll hear all about the shape of the flower bed. You'll hear about the height of the flowers and the spacing of the plants and uh, how some of these flowers will be tall and some will be short, how the garden looks in different angles. It's definitely a passion. For me, I'm continually trying to add emotion to visual media. For Clay, it's been observational writing, both very connective and very relatable nonfiction. When you read Clay Gregor's book, Last Flight Out, A State of Mind, his readers have often commented how it pulls you in very quickly, and I realized he was a writer that got to his point quickly without a lot of adjectives and without a lot of fluff. His work is very reflective, and he can be very pointed, like a period. What made your work so direct and pointed? But why I'm pointed and the way I speak to people is based on my military background. Uh, if I'd have been in the military and not in combat, I wouldn't have learned the importance of whatever I say has to be clear and distinct and to the point with as few words as possible because people's lives depend on it. If you give an order, you've got to be sharp and to the point and that is the way I lived a major portion of my life, speaking in that manner. So consequently, my writing is the same way. Uh, I, I try and keep it within a sentence or two. Uh, one of the best reviews I got on my first book was from a guy from New York who said, you had such wonderful, outrageous holes in your stories. You know, And he said, I just loved it because I wanted to know in depth everything about this story, but yet your story hit the nail on the head, but I wanted more. It's funny because people respond differently to art, to sports, to politics, to film, to writing, to the way the neighbor plants their garden. They all have their own opinions about things. And I'll never forget the guy who actually called me on the phone to tell me one night how lousy my televised program had been. But he liked the following show, which uh, wasn't mine. Well, it was like the other guy who told me that I read your book in 47 minutes. He said, I think I set a record. He said, but the thing is, I didn't sleep for three days after reading it. <laughs> and the other guy said, I got to page 17. It's all I could take. I don't know when I'll finish the rest of it. And I hear this all the time because I, I think it jars them. I think it jars them way too much. You know, uh, they'll carry with them, they read a chapter at a time over and over and over. You know, one of the most frustrating things I come across each day is when I find a friend or an acquaintance 
that is sitting around, standing by, waiting for good things to happen to them. Now, I have a friend, I'll call him uh, Tom, and he's in business, and he has the potential opportunity every day to network and to source out some new people, use those people for a resource or maybe a mentorship or create a new opportunity for himself in life, a new job maybe even. But Tom's held back by one thing, himself. No one's interested in what I do. Nobody cares. I don't get the attention I deserve. I've heard Tom say that over and over. See, Tom wants other people to make the first move to connect. He feels his life is purposeless where he's at. Nobody sees him. And no one will see him. There are those people who recognize a coincidence, and if it's favorable to them, their intuitiveness tells them to create a consequence out of it. There are those kind of people. I classify myself in that area. Then there are people who will recognize a coincidence, but think there's some master plan, so they don't have to act on it anymore. They just think it will automatically happen, which it never does. Then there are those people who don't have a clue what a coincidence is and just look like a horse with blinders on going through life telling me that there are no coincidences. And I say, well, can you explain that to me? Which they can. Just a lazy way of thinking. There are no coincidences. Next. That's the way their life is run. But my favorite person is the last one who doesn't even know there is a coincidence situation that exists or anything else. And on his final leg of his last journey, somebody tells him that if he had only made use of the coincidences that he ran into, he could have done so much more with his life. And he laments on his last leg, why didn't somebody tell me? And when I was a classroom teacher, my favorite thing to teach was history. I grew up learning comedic history from a radio artist named Stan Freeberg. You can check out his recordings. My favorite is Stan Freeberg Presents the United States of America. Although history was done in parody with Stan Freeberg, I learned it, and it stuck. Why? I believe that if history was retold as an exciting story, not just words or in a book, it could come alive. Through my travels throughout the United States, I feel that historic footprint in Williamsburg, in Jamestown, in Key West. And I have to tell you, it's exciting and motivating to know people were so impassioned about our freedom and the mistakes we made and our ability to move forward. The older I get, the more philosophical about life I become. And I believe that older people have a responsibility and a duty to pass on to others 
their wisdom. I really believe that. I think this country has stopped passing on anything to the next coming up generation. Like the lady from Chicago said, you're right, you know, when I was a child, we sat around and tell stories. I used to listen to my uncles, my aunts, and all this. Well, that don't happen anymore. So I feel like I have a responsibility to tell somebody or pass on to somebody my experiences that they may find useful in their life. In my next big book that I'm doing for this release with New York, my acknowledgement page I've already written, and it's going to read this. I generally acknowledge people as a favor or things that I like to do for people. So I put their names in these last three books. But this one is going to be, I would like to thank all those people who I never met but know exist who have gotten me to where I'm at because that's how I got here. There's a lot of people out there that help an awful lot of other people and expect nothing in return. And I did not come from them coal mines of Shemokin, Pennsylvania, you know, in 1958 when I walked out and ended up in Key West, Florida, working on a signed contract for a major book because of my own ability. And I think once you get aware of that, then you sort of want to pay back a little bit. And uh, if I don't tell you, then who's going to tell you? You know, you, I, I, I feel sorry for some people because they, they just grew up without learning. And uh, they're well-traveled and they have things in their life and, and it's all material. You know, you go in a conversation with eight adults now and they're going to say, how much my house is worth, how's my 401k doing, how my mutual funds are working, how my portfolio's acting, uh, we want to buy this, and it's all based on material things. Every great person in the world has a coach, but I use an example of Colonel Parker and Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley would not have gotten to where he was without Colonel Parker seeing something in him that Elvis hadn't seen, and he pulled it out of him, okay? It's like the Olympic coaches. It's like Tiger Woods. He needs coaches. He needs this. We need a lot of people to inspire. I need to be inspired each time I start a different project by a different person. And that's the way it works. When I wrote my first book, you know, Heather was the lady who inspired me mm -hmm. to write that book. Mm -hmm. When I wrote that poetry book, you know, it was the same thing. I had certain people who inspired me by making me really work harder that I could do better and, and to also pat me on the head constantly that they really liked what I was doing and they couldn't wait to see how far I would take it. Mm -hmm. That's the way it is. On the third book, I ran out of inspires. And I, that was a problem for me mm -hmm. because I stuttled, I stammered around a little bit, I stumbled and stammered around a little bit and, and messed around. It took me a lot longer than I thought it was gonna take. I was almost done, but I didn't have that, that, that final kick over the edge to say it's, it's a done deal. And then I had a laugh one day. I said, well, the best person who knows me that can inspire me is me. 
and, and I inspired myself. And uh, it was a mind game, but it worked. But it worked. young, my friends and I played together and we subtly gravitated toward other people just like us that had similar interests. As a five-year-old, I liked trains, I liked trucks, and I chose to hang out with a neighborhood boy named Paul. He had the most toy trucks I'd ever seen. It was here I learned to make all the truck noises young boys make when steering their toys around. Not a valuable life skill, but truly necessary as a boy playing trucks. Later in life, it was my peers that were into music and writing music. That was an area of passion and excitement for me. In eighth grade, after being challenged to produce a creative project in language arts class, my friend Fred Larson looked at me and said, Want to write a bunch of music for A Tale of Two Cities? I was on board. I had just found my like-minded connection. In upcoming years, Fred and I were in three separate bands together in our high school and our college years, and we understood that uniqueness of that similar connection. I'd be around like-kind people. Yeah. Uh, I have to be around winners. I have to be around people who will never surrender. Uh, I don't like negative conversation. Uh, and. That's the only people that I can surround myself with. Consequently, you know, it goes back to that old deal uh, picked up somewhere along the line. If you want to be a doctor, hang around doctors. If you want to be a welder, hang around welders. Well, that's it. Welders don't go to doctors' conventions, and doctors don't go to welders' conventions. They don't belong there. I'm not a jewelry salesman selling toe rings and, and nose plugs over here, so I have nothing in common with them, you know. But I do have a lot in common with other people in this town uh, are working on their own uh, future and are aggressive about it. You know, I was asked one time, why do I work so hard? And I said, well, I want to get to the winner's circle, but it's not the matter of me getting to the winner's circle. It's a matter of me still running towards the winner's circle at the end. That's what's most important. And... Uh, because hard work just, just means you work hard. Yeah. There's no guarantees on hard work. There are people out there that help us become better versions of ourselves. They're all around us, and, and some inspire us, and some support us. And I remember in high school, I had a great friend named Dave Wormington, or Worm as we called him. Worm was always the support of everything my band did. He called us kings, and he'd say, Nobody else can touch your band, Paul. You guys are great. Which was kind of odd because Dave was in his own band. I have to admit that felt really good. Dave was necessary in very unstable times. There were a lot of bands competing out there back then. Clay had a West Point recruit step up and teach him a valuable life skill. But that young lieutenant one day had invited me. He asked me for a ride home. And, you know, fraternization wasn't popular at that time. So okay. when we got to his house, he said, come on in. And then he had mentioned to me that we, at a party that we all had attended, he had watched me order a drink, which I think at that time was something like 
for me it would have been Southern Comfort and Coke. And uh, he said that in the military in West Point, part of their program was learning social graces and social acceptance. And there were certain things that you had to go through. And he said, I'm going to teach you how to order a drink. And was at his house, and, and he did. And he poured and showed me how to drink, not how to drink, but how to order a Tanqueray martini on the rocks with a twist. And I'm going to tell you, for the next two years, that's all I drank. <laughs> but the first time I ever did it was, I was living in Hollywood at the time, Los Angeles. We were at their defense unit. And I'd gone to a bar in Hollywood, and when the bartender said, well, you have, I couldn't wait. I said, I'll have a Tanqueray martini on the rocks with a twist, please. He looked at me and said, very good. I knew then I was part of society. Mm-hmm. But there were other times in my life when a sergeant major in, in Germany, when I was 19 years old, invited me to dinner and told me to wear my dress uniform, and, uh, which was unusual. But I went to his house for dinner, and he had a, a, his wife and his daughter were there. And they had served at that time a four-course dinner. And the reason they served it that way was he taught me going through, not a five-course, but a four-course dinner, how to eat when I'm at a social function because I never knew anything except the large spoon prior to that. And uh, he sat down and talked to me about that for a couple hours. So they picked me out of the crowd and said, look, you know, this guy probably has something, but he's so rough, what can I do for him? And uh, this happened many times in my life, many times in my life. Sure. If you are a writer, you cannot stop writing. I've learned that, and I didn't think that was possible uh, to be that diagnostic, but it is. I can't stop writing. Uh, If you're not a writer, then all that means is you looked at writing as a hobby, as something you wanted to try. You might have been good at it for a while, like a golf game, but it wasn't a talent. It was just an achieved uh, level of something and then that and that was the end of it I have to laugh at people when they say well I want to write a book but it's just for me and I say well then you don't have to write it if it's only for you you already know it why why go through the trouble and that's so true yeah this friend of mine from up the outside of Augusta he, he, he wrote a book self-published it and said I just wanted it for me and my family I said, why'd you spend all that money? Just put it on a CD. The truth of the matter is, if you are not writing for the public or an audience, you're not going to give it your best shot. That's the bottom line. The world of difference is me as a public speaker sitting here or on a dais somewhere at a a, a rotary club. There's a world of difference in the way I would handle myself. And uh, it's about writing. I write these stories, which are nonfiction, so I can pass on my experiences in a manner in which the average person will at least understand there are other people like them out there. And that's why I keep it short and to the point and not get off into this, you know, La La Land of giving blue sky advice. Do you ever write and use stories to send messages to people? 
Van Morrison said that he sings songs that people are too lazy to say, the words to his songs. I write words that they're too afraid to say sometimes. And uh, I think they like some comfort zone of it, that they're not alone or they're not that quite different. What is it that keeps your book selling and selling reprint after reprint? You know, that, that bothered me for a long time because I didn't have an answer, and I hate not having answers for my own questions. And it, it wasn't the, the quality of the writing that has kept this book selling like that. It's really the basic foundation of the way I express my feelings about things that I've done. It, it developed almost a cult, and I often laugh at people when they tell me and say, my God, I keep the book by my bedside, and I say, you know, I read this thing and I don't understand what you're getting out of it. And But that's, that's a true feeling, you see, because not giving the advice but sharing my experiences, to me, I've already experienced that stuff. These people haven't. Uh, I think everybody likes to to know that they that they can feel better somehow if they just tried, but they don't know how to try. Every question they have, they have an answer for themselves, but they don't want to complete the thought process or spend that much time thinking about themselves, so they want to read it in the book. Now, I had to ask Clay one more question. He's had a long journey, at times a very bumpy one. Coming from the Shimokan, Pennsylvania coal mines to two tours of duty in Vietnam, living near the Three Mile Island meltdown, and finally landing in Key West. I wanted to know if his life was on track, so I asked him to finish this very simple sentence. Life is great. Because because I finally know who in the hell I am. And I discovered a talent that I didn't know existed. And I validated myself. And I'm totally happy with myself. That's why life is great. I, I've been happy since <laughs> I moved here in 1978. No, really, life is great because I'm doing exactly, because I'm doing the best that I'm best at right now. That may change, but right now I'm doing the absolute best I'm best at. The book is Last Flight Out, A State of Mind by author Clay Gregor, currently available on Amazon.com. Other books by Clay Gregor, A License to Dream, and The Sun Rises for You, and So You Think You Could Be President, co-authored with Iris Burnett. Just like Clay explained, don't wait for inspiration. Go after it. We have people and opportunities all around us just waiting to be revealed and developed. Don't miss this chance. Build your foundation. It may be your last one. Or as Clay might say, it's your last flight out. Don't waste it. For Life's Learning Curve... I'm Paul Hart.
Our show is put together by producer Paul Hart with assistance by Mike Hansen, Chuck Fisher, and S.T. Dog. Mixed by Chad Loebner, technical director Luke Hartster, musical assistance by the Walrus Filters, Riles Hartley, and Forsythe's Matthew Von Braun. Closing theme today by Matthew Von Braun and Riley Hart, mixed by the amazing Hunter Funk. On this show, special thanks to Clay Greger, Trace McClintock, and Heidi Cerner. Our website, sixtoadcinema.vistaprintdigital.com. And I said the room is filled with people that love you. The room is filled with people that love you. I'm Paul Hart, and we'll be back soon with more stories from Life's Learning Curve. <laughs>